ThriveMarket.com. Healthy living made easy. Guaranteed savings on your favorite organic brands delivered to your door. Healthy groceries shouldn't break the bank. Low price promise. Find a product cheaper elsewhere at rival eat price. How it works? Build your orders. Shop 6,000 plus wholesome products curated just for members. Never run out. Get recurring deliveries on a schedule personalized to you. You're in control. Easily add or remove items. Skip a delivery or pause anytime. Your new one-stop shop from organic pantry staples to clean beauty to non-toxic home. Shop by over 70 diets and values. Gluten-free, ketogenic, organic, vegan, thoughtfully sourced seafood. Thrive Market is aligned closely with key industry watchdogs, identified partners who catch sustainable and traceable seafood. For $5 a month for a risk-free trial for 30 days. Fast-free, carbon-neutral shipping. Free gifts and samples. Every membership gives to someone in need. Better for you and the planet. Ethical and sustainable sourcing. Carbon-neutral shipping. Zero waste warehouses, recyclable, compostable packaging. Thrive also gives every fa- every annual membership sponsors a free one for a family in need. Thrive's mission is to help make organic foods more accessible. Good morning. Hope you had a good week. Today's true crime story is the toolbox killers. Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, Part 1. Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker, September 27, 1940, December 13, 2019, and Roy Lewis Norris, February 5, 1948, February 24, 2020, also known as the Toolbox Killers, were two American serial killers and rapists who kidnapped, raped, tortured, and killed five teenage girls in Southern California over a period of five months in 1979. Described by FBI Special Agent John E. Douglas as the most disturbing individual for whom he was ever educated a criminal file, Bittaker was sentenced to death for five murders on March 24, 1981, but died of natural causes while incarcerated on death row in San Quentin State Prison in December 2019. Norris accepted a plea bargain whereby he agreed to testify against Bittaker and was sentenced to life imprisonment on May 7, 1980 with the possibility of parole after serving 30 years. He died of natural causes at the California Medical Facility in February 2020. Bittaker and Norris became known as the Toolbox Killers because the majority of instruments used to torture the murder and murder their victims, such as pliers, ice picks, and such as were items normally stored inside a household toolbox. Early life, Lawrence Bittaker. Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on September 27, 1940 as the unwell child of a couple who had children to not have children. Bittaker was placed in an orphanage by his natural mother and, ado- and was adopted by Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker. As an infant, Bittaker's adopted father worked in the aviation industry which required the family to frequently move around the United States throughout his childhood. Bittaker was first arrested for shuffling and at the age of 12 obtained a minor criminal record over the next four years after further arrest for the same offense in addition to petty theft, which brought him to the attention of juvenile authorities. Bittaker would later claim the numerous, these numerous theft-related offenses committed throughout his adults had been attempts to compensate for the lack of wealth he received from his parents. Although born to have an IQ of 138, Bittaker considered school be a tedious experience and dropped out of high school in 1957. By this stage in his adolescence, he was 
He and his adoptive parents were living in California. Within a year of dropping out, he had been arrested for car theft, a hit-and-run, and evading arrest. With these offenses, he was imprisoned at the California Youth Authority, where he remained until he was 18 years old. Upon release, Whitaker discovered his adoptive parents had disowned him and, re- and had relocated to another state. He would f- never see his adoptive parents again. Roy Norris Roy Lewis Norris was born in Greeley, Colorado on February 5, 1948. Norris was conceived out of wedlock. His parents had married to avoid the social stigma surrounding illegitimate birth at the time. Norris' extended family lived within a short distance of his parents' home due to his grandfather's real estate investments. His father worked in, in a scrapyard and his mother was a drug-addicted housewife. He occasionally lived with his parents throughout his childhood and adolescence but was repeatedly placed in the care of Lots of parents throughout the state of Colorado. Norris's childhood recollections were interspersed with members of wrongful accusations while living with his biological parents and up being neglected by many of the foster parents he lived with, frequently being denied sufficient food or clothing. He also claimed to have been sexually abused when in the care of a Hispanic family, later stating that prejudice he held towards Hispanic people originated from neglect and abuse he endured as a child when placed in the care of this family. While living with his birth parents at, eight, at the age of 16, Norris visited the home of a female relative who wasn't in her early 20s and began speaking to her in a sexually suggestive manner. She ordered him to leave her house and informed Norris's father, who threatened to subject him to a beating. Norris subsequently stole his father's gun and drove it to the Rocky Mountains, where he attempted to commit suicide by injecting pure air into an artery into, in his arm. He was later apprehended as a runaway and later returned to live with his parents. Upon his return home, Norris' parents informed him that he and his younger sister were unwanted children and that they were intended to divorce and that they intended to divorce when both reach adolescence. A year later, Norris dropped out of high school and joined the United States Navy. He was stationed in San Diego in 1965 and was deployed to Vietnam in 1969. Although he did not see active combat during his four-month tour of duty, he was honorably discharged from the Navy after one year, after one tour of duty. First offenses, Bittaker. Within days of referral from the California Youth Authority, Bittaker was arrested for transferring a stolen vehicle across state lines. In August 1959, Bittaker was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment to be served in the Oklahoma State Reformatory. He was later transferred to the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, to serve the remainder of his sentence. In 1960, Bittaker was released from prison and soon reverted to crime. Within months of his release, he had been arrested in Los Angeles for robbery and in May 1961 was sentenced to 15 years of prison while incarcerated for this robbery. He was diagnosed by a psychiatrist as having highly manipulative, as being highly manipulative. The psychiatrist also described Bittaker as having considerable concealed hostility. Bittaker was released on parole in 1963 after completing two years of his in October 1964, he was again in prison for parole violation. In 1966, Bittaker underwent further examination by two independent psychiatrists, both of whom classified him as a borderline psychopath, a highly manipulative individual, unable to acknowledge the consequences of his actions. Bittaker explained to one of them that his criminal activities gave him a feeling of self-importance, although he insisted circumstantial matters pertaining to his environment and upper decreased his inability to resist committing crimes. Bittaker was prescri- prescribed 
antipsychotic medication, and a year later he was again released into society. A month after his parole in July 1967, Bideke was again arrested and convicted of theft and of leaving the scene of an accident. He was sentenced to five years but was released in April 1970. In March 1971, Bideke was again arrested for burglary due to repeated parole violations. He was sentenced to six months to 15 years of prison in October 1971. Three years later, Bitter Kerr was again released from prison. In 1974, Bitter was arrested for assault, which attempted to commit murder after he had stabbed a young supermarket employee who had accused him of stealing. A supermarket employee had observed Bitter stealing a steak and had followed Bitter outside and into the store's parking lot where he asked Bitter whether he had forgotten to pay. Bideker responded by stabbing his pursuer in the chest, nearly missing his heart. He attempted to flee, but was quickly restrained by two other supermarket employees. The employee, Gary Louie, survived the stabbing, and Bideker was convicted of the lesser charge of assault with a deadly weapon and sent to California men's colony in St. Louis Obispo. Norris In November 1969, Norris was arrested for his first known sexual offenses. He was charged with both rape and assault with attempt to commit rape in the latter incident. He had attempted to force his way into the car of a lone woman. Three months later, in February 1970, Norris attempted to deceive the lone woman into allowing him to enter her home. When the woman refused, he attempted to break into her house. The woman phoned the police who was arrested. Who arrested Norris before he had the opportunity to cause the woman any harm. Less than three months after his the offense, Norris was diagnosed by military psychologist with a severe schizoid personality. He was given up an administered, administered discharge from the Navy and the terms labeled as psychological problems. In May 1970, Norris on bail for his latest offense attacked a female student whom he had been stalking on the grounds of the San Diego State University campus. Norris repeatedly struck her on the back of the head with a rock until she slumped to her knees before he repeatedly beat her head against the sidewalk as a, as he knelt upon her lower back. Shortly thereafter, Norris was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. He was committed to a total of five years of imprisonment at the Atascadero State Hospital, where he was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. Norris was released from the Atascadero State Hospital in with five years probation, have been declared by doctors as an individual who was of no further danger to others. Just three months after his release, Norris approached a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant in Redondo Beach and offered her a ride on his motorcycle. When she declined, Norris parked his motorcycle and grabbed the woman's car, twisting it around her neck before informing her he was intended to rape her and dragging her into the nearby bushes. Fearing for her life, the woman did not resist the weight rape. Although the rape was reported to police, they were initially unable to find the perpetrator. However, one month later, the victim observed Norris's motorcycle and noted the license number, which she immediately gave to the police. Norris was arrested for the rape. One year later, he was tried and convicted for this offense and sent to the California Men's Colony at San Luis Obispo. While incarcerated at the California Men's Colony, Norris met and befriended Bideker. Acquaintance, Bideker and Norris initially became loosely acquainted in 1987, one year after Norris arrived at San Luis Obispo. Bideker's initial impression of Norris upon his arrival at the California Men's Colony was that he was a savvy individual who largely associated with hardened criminals from motorcycle gangs. 
In addition to dealing in contraband drugs, the pair gradually became more closely acquainted and began talking in friendly terms when Norris taught Whitaker how to construct jewelry. According to Norris, Whitaker saved him from being attacked by fellow inmates on at least two occasions. By 1970, the pair had become close acquaintances, discovering they shared a common interest in sexual violence and misogyny. With homicide, with Norris also divulging to Whitaker, the biggest stimulation for him was of seeing a frightened young woman. Adding this was the primary reason he had amassed a lengthy record for sexual offenses. Whitaker, who is not known to have committed any sexual offenses prior to his meeting Norris, in himself divulged to Norris that if he ever raped a woman, he would kill her so as not to leave a, a witness to the, the crime. When alone, the pair regularly discussed plans to assault and murder teenage girls once they were freed. They should, this shared fancy involved, evolved into an elaborate plan to murder one girl of each teenage year from 13 to 19. The pair vowed to become reacquainted once they were released. Whitaker was released from the California men's colony on October 15, 1978. He returned to Los Angeles to work as a skilled machinist. This work earned Whitaker close to $1,000 a week, and despite classifying himself as a loner, became friendly with several people in his neighborhood, earning a reputation as a generous and helpful individual who occasionally donated money to the Salvation Army. On one occasion, he was known to, to have purchased large quantities of fast food and wine, which he then handed to homeless individuals in downtown Los Angeles. Whitaker was popular among the local teenagers and later admitted the primary reason he always had beer and marijuana at the Burbank Hotel was that his residence would have made a proper place for teenagers to socialize. Three months after being released from the California Men's Colony on January 15, 1970, North was released from prison and moved into his Muslim or Redondo Beach, he soon found employment as an electrician in Compton. Shortly thereafter, he received a letter from Whitaker in late February. The pair met at a, local, at a hotel where kindled their plan to kidnap and rape girls. In order for the pair to be able to successfully exact teenage girls, Whitaker decided they would need an, a van as opposed to a car with financial assistance from North Whitaker. Purchase of silver 1977 GMC cargo van in February 1979. The vehicle was windowless on the side and had a large passenger sliding side sliding door. According to Pitaker, when reviewing this sliding door, he realized that he, he or Norris could pull up to a teenage girl real close and not have to open the doors all the way. Pitaker and Norris would nickname this van Murder Mac. Murders. From February to June 1939, Pitaker and Norris picked up over 20 female hitchhikers. The pair did not assault these girls in any manner. These practice runs were merely a way to, for them to develop bruises to lure girls into the van voluntarily and discovering secluded locations. In late April, the pair discovered a secluded fire road located in the San Gabriel Mountains. Bittaker broke the lock gate to this fire road with a crowbar and replaced the lock with one he owned. Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, Bittaker and Doris killed their first victim, 16-year-old Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, on June 24, 1979. Schaefer had his last seen leaving a Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach. In his written accounts of the events of this day, Bittaker stated he and Norris first 
Nice constructing the the bed. The pair had stalled in the rear of the van beneath which they placed full salt and a cooler filled with beer and soft drinks. At approximately 11 a.m., the pair drove to the beach area, drinking beer, smoking grass, and flood of grove. We had no set routine. At approximately 7.46 p.m., Nora spotted Schaefer walking down a side street and remarked to Bittiger, there's a cute little blonde. After Ensign attempting to entice Schaefer into the van with alternative offers of marijuana and a left home, Bittiger and Norris drove further ahead and parking alongside the driver. Norris then exited the vehicle, opened the passenger sliding, side sliding door, and leaned into the van with his head and shoulders obscured from view behind the door. When Schaefer passed the van, Norris exchanged a few words with her before dragging her into the van and closing the door. Using a ruse, they would repeat in most of their subsequent murders. Bittiger turned the radio to full volume as Norris bound the victim's arms and legs and gagged her with duct tape as Bittiger drove Schaefer to the prior road in the San Gabriel Mountains where in April the pair had previously switched the locks. Despite initial screaming when she was abducted, Schaefer quickly regained her composure in his written account of the night that followed Bittiger wrote that Schaefer displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. At the fire road, Norris prostrate Schaefer after instructing Bittaker to go take a walk and returned in one hour. Upon returning to the van, Bittaker similarly raped the girl in Norris' absence. Upon the second occasion in which she was raped by Norris in Bittaker's absence, Schaefer asked him whether they intended to kill her, to which Norris replied, no. In response, Schaefer requested to be allowed time to pray before she was killed, if that was Bittaker and Norris's intention. In the subsequent accounts of the actual murder, Bittaker and Norris gave different accounts as to who argued or whether they would kill her rather than release her. Each stated that the other argued that they should kill her in in the event, Schaefer pleaded for only a second to pray before Norris attempted to manually strangle her. After approximately 45 seconds, he began to stir that at the look in her eyes and ran to the front of the van vomiting. Bittiger then manually strangled Schaefer until she collapsed to the ground and began convulsing. He then twisted a wire coat around, <coughs> around her neck and with the vice grip pliers until Schaefer's convulsion ceased. Schaefer was in for request to pray for Bittaker and Norris killed her. Schaefer's body was wrapped in a plastic shower curtain and thrown over a steep canyon Bittaker had selected. According to Norris, after Bittaker had thrown Schaefer over the canyon, Bittaker assured him that animals would eat her up so there wouldn't be any evidence left. Andrea Joy Hall on July 8, 1979, two weeks after the murder of Schaefer, Bittiger, and Norris got 18 year old Andrea Joy Hall hitchhiking along the Pacific, <coughs> Pacific Coast Highway. As the pair slowed to the van to offer Hall's a lift, another vehicle pulled over and offered Hall's luckily that, which she accepted. Bittiger and Norris followed the vehicle from a distance of Hall as the vehicle in Redondo Beach. 
On this occasion, Lord was hid in the back of the van in order to follow the thicket. Bittaker was alone. Inside the van, Bittaker offered a haul a drink, cold drink from the cooler located in the rear of the van. <coughs> North pounced on her when she went to retrieve it, and after a strenuous fight, managed to subdue Hall by twisting her arm around her back, causing her to scream in pain. North then ganged Hall with, the, with adhesive tape and bound her wrists and ankles. Whitaker and North drove Hall to a location in the San Gabriel Mountains, beyond where they had taken Schaefer at, at this location. She was raped twice by Whitaker and once by North. While Bittaker was raped Hall for the second time, North saw what he believed to be vehicle headlights approaching. Bittaker clasped his hand over Hall's mouth and dragged her into a nearby bushes as North drove into drove in an, an unsuccessful search for the vehicle he thought he had seen. When he returned, the pair drove to a location farther in the San Gabriel Mountains. Bittaker forced Hall to walk uphill naked alongside the road and to then perform oral sex on him. Before Oregon called the full facility Polaroid pictures. Bittaker and Norris drove Hall to a third location where Bittaker again walked Hall up a nearby hill. This time, as Norris drove to a nearby store to purchase alcohol, when Norris returned, Bittaker was alone and in possession of two further Polaroid positions he had taken, both of which depicted Hall's face and expressions. Norris later described as being of sheer terror. As she begged for her life to be spared, Bittaker informed Nora that he had told Hall he was going to kill her and challenge her to give him, any, many, give him as many reasons as she could come up with as to why he should allow, she should be allowed to live. Before thrusting an ice pick through her ear into her brain, he then turned her body over and thrust the ice pick into her other ear, stomping out until the handle broke. Bittaker then strangled her before throwing her body off a cliff. Jackie Doris Gilliam, Gilliam and Jacqueline Leah Lamp on September 3rd. Bittaker and Norris observed two girls named Jackie Doris Gilliam and Jacqueline Leah Lamp on a bus, bench, bus stop bench located close to Hermosa Beach. Lamp and Gilliam had been hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway before Bittaker and Norris observed them as they were resting at the bus stop. Bittaker and Norris offered the girls a ride, which Gilliam and Lamp Accepted inside the van, both girls were offered marijuana by Norris, which they accepted. Shortly after entering the van, both girls realized that Bittaker had steered the van off the Pacific Coast Highway and was driving into the direction of San Gabriel Mountains. When the girls protested, both Bittaker and Norris attempted to allay the girls' concerns, which did not deceive either girl. Lamp, age 13, attempted to open the sliding door whereupon Norris hit her on the back of the head with a bag filled with lead weights, briefly knocking her unconscious before overpowering 15-year-old Gilliam. As he began to pine and gag Gilliam, Lamp became conscious and again attempted to flee the van, whereupon Norris twisted her arm behind her back and dragged her back into the van. As this struggle ensued, Bittaker, noting the girl's struggle was in full view of potential witnesses, stopped the van, punched Gilliam in the face, assisted Norris in finishing binding and gagging the two girls. Gilliam and Lamp were driven to the San Gabriel Mountains where they were held captive for almost two days, being bound and gagged between repeated incidents of sexual and 
Sexual and physical abuse both men slept in the van alongside their two houses, with each alternately acting as a lookout. On one occasion, Bennica walked lamp onto a nearby hill and forced her to pose for a pornographic picture before returning her to the van. Bittaker also asked Norris to take several Polaroid pictures of himself and Gilliam, both nude and clothed. In the first of three instances in which Bittaker raped Gilliam, he also created a tape recording of himself raping her, forcing the girl to, re- to pretend she was his cousin and informing Gilliam to feel free to express her pain. Bittaker later claimed he buried the tape in the cemetery. The tape recording of Gilliam's rape was never found. Bittaker is also known to have tortured Gilliam by stabbing her breast with an ice pick and using vice grip pliers to tear off tear off part of one nipple. After almost two days of captivity, Lamp and Gilliam were murdered at the Vindica's subsequent trial. Norris claimed he had suggested that Gilliam be killed quickly as, unlike Lamp, she had been largely cooperative throughout the period of her captivity, whereupon Vindica replied, no, they only die once anyway. Gilliam was struck in, the, in each ear with an ice pick, then strangled to death. After Bittaker had murdered Gilliam, he then forced Lamp out of the van upon exiting the sliding door. Bittaker shouted to her, you wanted to stay a virgin, now you die a virgin. Before Doris struck her upon the head with a sledgehammer, Bittaker then strangled Lamp until he believed she had died. When Lamp opened her eyes, Norris again bludgeoned her repeatedly as Bittaker strangled her to death. The bodies of Gilliam and Lamp were thrown over and back into the chaparral. Shirley Lynette Ledford, Bittaker and Norris abducted their final victim, 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford. On October 31, 1979, Ledford was abducted as she stood outside a gas station, hitchhiking home uh, from a Halloween party in the Sunland to Jenga, Serberboff, Los Angeles. Investors believe Ledford was set to ride home Bittaker and Norris because she recognized Bittaker as he is known to have frequented the restaurant in which Ledford held a part-time job as a waitress. Upon to the offer of a lift home and entering the van, Ledford was offered marijuana by Norris, but she refused. Bittaker drove the van to a secluded street, whereby Norris drew a knife, then banned and gagged Ledford with construction tape. Bittaker then traded blades with Norris, who drove in an aimless manner for an excess of an hour, as Bittaker remained with Ledford in the back of the van. After removing the construction tape from the girl's mouth and legs, Bittaker tormented Ledford, initially slapping and mocking her, then beating her with his fist as he repeatedly shouted for her to say something. Then, as Ledford began screaming, shouting for her to scream louder, as Ledford continued screaming, Bittaker began asking her as he struck her, What's the matter? Don't you like to scream? As Ledford began to cry, she pleaded Bittaker said, No, don't touch me. In response, Bittaker again ordered her to scream as loud as she wished, then began alternately striking her with a hammer, beating her breast with his fist, and torturing her with flowers both between and throughout the instances where he raped and sodomized her. Repeatedly, repeatedly, Ledford can be heard pleading for the abuse to cease and making statements such as, Oh no, no, he says, sounds of vinegar or totally distressing. Either the sledgehammer or the flowers from the toolbox can be heard on tip recorder. He had switched on after he, entering the rear of the van. Norris later described hearing screams, constant screams emanating from the rear of the van as he drove. Shortly after Norris switched places with Vinegar, he himself switched on the tape recording that Vinegar had used to record much of the time. He 
the event in the rear of the van with Ledford Norris there. First shot of four, Ledford to go ahead and scream or I'll make you scream in response. Ledford said, I'll scream if you stop hitting me. Then he made a several high-pitched screams as Norris encouraged her to continue until he ordered her to stop. Norris then reached for the sledgehammer. Should Ledford seeing him do the screams? Oh no. Norris then struck Ledford once upon the elbow. In response, she informed Norris he had broken her elbow before pleading, don't hit me again. In response, Norris again raised the sledgehammer as Ledford repeated screams, no. Norris then proceeded to strike Ledford 25 times upon the same elbow with the sledgehammer before asking her, what are you going, what are you sibling about? As Ledford continued to scream and wept. We've all heard women scream in horror films, still we know that no one is really screaming. Why? Simply because the actors can't produce some scars that convince us that something violent and heinous is happening. Have you ever heard that tape there? It's just no possible way that you don't begin to cry. Begin crying and trembling. I doubt you could listen to more than a full 60 seconds of it. After approximately two hours of captivity, Norris killed Leffer by strangling it with a wild coat hanger, which he tightened with pliers. Leffer did not react much to the act of strangulation, although she died with her eyes open. Bittaker then opted to discard her body on a random blonde order to view the reaction from the press. The pair drove to a rather selected house on Sunland and discovered Ledford's body in a bed of ivy upon the front lawn. Ledford's body was found by the jogger following the following morning, and autopsy revealed that in addition to having been sexually violated, she had died of strangulation after receiving excessive blunt force trauma to the face, head, breast, and left elbow with her olecranon sustaining multiple fractures. Her genitalia and rectum had been torn, caused in part by vinegar having inserted pliers inside her body. In addition, her left hand bore a puncture wound and a finger on her right hand had been slashed. Vinegar would later claim to tape when the tape recording the pair had created of luxurious clear abuse and torture offered nothing other than the evidence of the threesome, adding that towards the very end, Shirley left her was screaming for him and North to kill her. Investigation in November 1999, North became reacquainted with a friend named Joseph Jackson, an individual with whom he had previously been incarcerated at the California Men's Club. North confided in this individual as to his physical sex exploits over the previous five months, including graphic details of the murder of Sherry, Shirley Ledford, the only victim whose body had been found at this time. Norris also divulged to Jackson that, in addition to the five murders that he and Bittaker had committed, there had been three additional incidents in which he, had, he and Bittaker had abducted or attempted to abduct young women who had either successfully escaped their attacks or in one instance had actually been raped but released. Upon hearing Norris's conviction, Jackson consulted his attorney who advised him to inform authorities. Jackson agreed that he and his attorney informed the Los Angeles Police Department who in turn relayed the two men to the Redondo Beach Police. A Redondo Beach detective named Paul Bynum was assigned to investigate Jackson's claims as to Norris's conviction of the murders, attempted abduction and race that he confided to Jackson that had occurred between June and October by Item Manisha noted that Jackson's statements as to Norris's conventions 
Give me a support of all teenage, of several teenage girls have been reported missing over the previous five months. In addition, the incident Norris had confided to Jackson, where he claimed he and Bittaker had sprayed mace in the face of a woman who had then been dragged into Bittaker's GMC van and raped by both men, matched a report filed in relation to an incident that occurred on September 30th. In this filed report, a young woman named Robin Robeck had made in her face before being dragged to the van and raped by two occasions by two Caucasian men in the mid-30s before being released. Although Roback had reported the abduction rape to police, they had been un- a- unable to identify her assailants. Bonin dispatched an investigator to visit Roback at a residence in Oregon to show her a series of mugshots without hesitation. Roback also identified two photos presented to her as those of the men who had kidnapped and raped her on September 30th, the two individuals she identified were Bittaker and Norris. The rest, upon linking Bittaker and Norris to the rape of Robin Robeck, their home also Beach police placed Norris under surveillance within days they have observed his dealing marijuana on November 1979. Norris was arrested by the Hermosa Beach police for parole violation. That same day at the Burbank Motel where he resided, Bittaker was arrested for the rape of Robin Robeck. Although Robeck had been able to identify mugshots identify of Bittaker and Norris in a police lineup, she was unable to possibly identify her assailants. Nonetheless, police observed Norris dealing in a marijuana, whereas Bittaker had been in possession of drugs at the time of his arrest. Both were held on charges of parole violation. The search of Bittaker's apartment revealed several Polaroid photographs which were determined as depicting Holland Gilliam, both of whom had been reported as missing earlier in the same year inside Bittaker's van. Investigators discovered a sledgehammer and a plastic bag filled with lead weights, a book detailing how to locate police radio frequencies, a jar of Vaseline, two necklaces, a letter from his belonging to two of the victims, a tape recording of a young woman in obvious distress. <coughs> Screaming and playing for mercy while being tortured and sexually abused. The mother of Ledford, named by Jackson as being one of the woman, women whom Norris had confessed he and Bittaker killed, identified the voice on the tape as being that of her only daughter. The voices of the two men mocking and threatening Ledford in the process for torture and abuse were identified as being Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker, also found in Bittaker's motel, were seven bottles of various aesthetic materials. Investors would later discover Bittaker planned to use these sick materials upon their next victim. Inside North's apartment, police discovered a bracelet he had taken from Ledford's body as a souvenir. Also found at the home of both Bittaker and Norris were Polaroid pictures of almost 500 teenage girls and young women, most of which she apparently, had apparently been taken at Redondo Beach and Hermosa Beach. With others taken by Bittaker at a Burbank High School, most of the pictures had been taken without the girl's knowledge or consent. Thank you for listening to this true crime story. Stay tuned for the second part. Have a good week and stay safe.